I'm not sure yet what the name of this talk is. I, I probably will have a better idea at the end of the talk. It's either strengthening the practice or balance in practice, but it has something to do with working with all of the instructions for this practice. At this point in the retreat, you really have had all the instructions, and now there are three more whole days to practice, which is a really exciting time to really work with this technique. Partly the reason I decided to talk about this tonight is from, from uh, questions that people bring up in interviews. Partly I thought it would be good for you to know how it is for us to do interviews, what it is that we're listening for and why it is or how it is that we choose to respond and how we decide on what kinds of answers to give to people's questions. Really, it's listening to uh, the kind of balance that's happening in people's practice and helping with suggestions, we hope helping with suggestions, that balance the factors of effort and concentration and mindfulness. I had a little bit of a concern when I was making notes for this talk tonight that it would begin to sound kind of like a recipe, like a cookbook, like one cup of concentration and a half a cup of mindfulness. Uh, But then I decided that would be all right. I would treat it as um, kind of uh, hints from Heloise, you know, you read in the (laughs) newspapers. I want to preface it by saying that it's really important to remember that the point of doing this practice is not to become a good meditator. These are techniques to develop this technique of meditation. But the point of practice is not to become a good meditator or a skillful observer of breath. The point of the practice is to become free, is to realize truth, is to realize freedom. Towards that end, this particular practice is a very skillful means I want to tell you that in the beginning and I'll probably remind you that at the end because it's really important that one doesn't lose sight of the goal. I think to that, I just remembered about this. I think that there are some people who just realize truth. There are some people who seem to just be wise. Uh, Sometimes people say we get older, we get wiser. I don't think that's true necessarily. But some people just naturally seem to get it about what's true. Um, My grandfather, who lived to be very old, he was 98 when he died, was illiterate and unschooled, but he had a pretty um, clear view of, balanced view of how, at least of impermanence, of how things come and go. Things would happen to him in his life. He had a lot of difficulties in his life. He outlived three three wives. He worked really hard. He had lots of business reversals. In, In all the time that I knew him, the greatest lesson that I had from him was some really difficult time in life would happen. And he'd say, he'd feel it very intensely, but then he'd say, well, what are you going to do? That's life. And he'd continue on. And he really had that ability to see that that's life, that you have joy times and pain times, and that's what life is, and to balance himself. 
for most of us, it's not so easy. We struggle so much with the good times and the bad times. So we need a technique and we need a practice. Very much I think of this practice as a practice of balance. Vipassana practice really is a practice of balance. It's a practice that combines concentration practice with awareness, alertness, mindfulness practice. I'll tell you a practice story from my own experience. It happened here in this very building. Some years ago, I was practicing. It was in the fall of the year. And uh, my practice was going very nicely, as far as I was concerned. I was happy. It was not a struggle time in practice. And things were unfolding, and I was very pleased about it. And I had a certain kind of routine that I had worked out for myself that I was being very careful about maintaining, because I didn't want it to change my experience. So I ate a certain amount, and I was very careful not to overeat, and I kept my sleeping down to a minimum, and I was very extremely meticulous about practice, and I had everything exactly in balance, I thought. And then one day, I read on the bulletin board a notice that said, um, tomorrow is um, a worldwide day of fasting for um, hunger And if you decide to fast tomorrow, you don't have to, but if you decide to fast, we'll mark your name or mark a mark here on the bulletin board, and we will take the money that we save for not cooking from you tomorrow and donate it to this worldwide hunger cause. All of a sudden, I have major consternation. (laughs) Everything is just the way I want it to be, and now I'm, I'm faced with a dilemma. I certainly... My heart is wanting to fast, but all of the, I've gotten everything exactly measured out and titered out exactly right, what to do. I go to my teacher for the interview. I tell my consternation. He says, do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. I have thought about that a lot since then because I realize it's the generic answer to a whole lot of questions. Not demeaning it. It's a very valuable answer. It is the answer to, should I walk more or less? Should I eat more or less? Should I sleep more or less? Should I sit more or less? It is the answer to all of those questions. It's a perfect answer. Do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. So... I'm going to tell you about balance and practice a little bit. I'm going to tell you about developing concentration and developing mindfulness and about keys to keeping them in balance. Here's where it begins to sound like a cookbook. First of all, it's important to say that concentration and mindfulness actually continually strengthen and deepen each other. Successive moments of mindfulness of being aware of a changing array of experiences, different experiences, one moment to the next, knowing them fully, actually deepens concentration. We tend to think of concentration deepening through persistent being with one object. It is also true that concentration deepens as mindfulness, moments of mindfulness are continuous. 
concentration deepens. Also, as concentration deepens and calm is more established, we are then more able to be open really fully to moments of experience. So deepening concentration really opens and augments the ability to be mindful. So they really go together. They really uh, develop together. It's not possible actually to develop mindfulness without a certain amount of concentration. And mindfulness develops concentration. So then there's a question of how concentrated should you be? Could you be too concentrated? Actually, you can for this practice. So we'll do those two questions first. How concentrated should you be? Should be concentrated enough to be calm and focused and clear and ability to stay steadfastly with observing objects as they arise and pass away. Certain level of concentration is necessary to do that. Can you get too concentrated? Well, there's a way in which you can. It sounds like if it's a good thing, why shouldn't you have too much of it? Or how could you have too much of it? There's a way sometimes, particularly in sitting practice, where we lock on to an object like the breath and kind of stay with it. There's a way of getting a little bit zoned out on that object. I know it well because it was a period of my practice, certainly, where that was a major factor that I was aware of working with. Especially as one really settles down into being able to be concentrated and develops that ability for one-pointedness, there's the possibility that one locks onto the object like the breath in a one-pointed way. And there are certain um, effects of concentration which are really quite pleasant. All of a sudden, don't feel the body. It's very nice. Pain goes away. Feel really pleasant. You have some really uh, relief from discomfort. And it's not a very alert place, but it's not uncomfortable. And maybe you recognize it from your own practice because you get to feel, whoa, finally I can hang out here and this is really nice. I know that from personal experience, from a lot of hanging out in that place. It's not unpleasant, but there isn't a lot of wisdom in it. There isn't a lot of alertness in it. One of the things, by the way, here comes cookbook now, if that happens, do this. One of the things that you could bring into your practice if you notice that that's a situation for you is it's not a bad thing to get quite concentrated and it's not bad for the pain to be gone and to feel wonderful feelings in the body. Just don't hang out there endlessly. The, the technique of mental noting is very helpful, especially in those kinds of moments, to purposely move the attention with awareness to touch points in the body. Be sitting in and out, in and out. If you have any sense of that it's not so clear, that it's a little bit zoned out, really move the attention. I'm feeling my hands touching each other, touching, feel the lips touching, feel your buttocks touching the pillow. Wake up the mind. That coming to touch points with the attention is just keeping the mind alert. You can stay pretty concentrated and keep a level of brightness in it. 
It's nothing wrong with actually very deep levels of concentration if the commensurate levels of brightness and alertness stay present. So now we'll have, if mindfulness is good for you, can you have too much mindfulness? Actually, you can't have too much mindfulness. This is mindfulness practice. Mindfulness is good for you. Sometimes what people uh, experience is not too much mindfulness, but a great deal of awareness of different things going on that actually isn't mindfulness. It's actually kind of superficial awareness of lots of experiences. It's kind of scattered attention or unfocused attention. I began to, in the very early days of my practice, I remember saying to one of my teachers as I got the notion that I ought to be paying attention to all aspects of my experience, and I was really into doing it, and I said, this is just like being on sentry duty. You watch out for everything. And they said, no, no, actually sentry duty is not where it's at, because if you think about sentry duty, it is vigilant to everything that's happening, but it's not calm. Sentries aren't calm. They're vigilant, but with a high level of tension. This is calm vigilance. This is focused, open, calm, steadfast vigilance. So it's really a dance. We dance between becoming concentrated and then keeping the concentration alively and uh, awake enough so that with concentration, with focus, we can see clearly the changing objects. Really so that we can begin to know impermanence. This is not only to know what's happening, but to see what's true about what's happening. So that you not only have to be there for it, you have to watch it change. That's how insight arises. So I'll tell you some aids to deepening concentration. This is what will happen when you come for an interview and you tell your experience. We listen and we hear perhaps too much concentration. We say some things to wake up the mindfulness. We hear too much scatter. We say some things to deepen the concentration. Here are some techniques for deepening the concentration. One is returning to the primary object, returning to the breath, and returning to the walking. Both the attention to the breath as we sit and the attention to the changing movements in the feet as we walk are ways to cultivate and deepen concentration. I'll even tell you two ways of returning the instant way and the not-so-instant way. Both of these have been very helpful for me, and I'll tell them both to you, and you can play with them in your practice. It's really a delight to do this practice. Here are the two ways. Here's the instant way. I remember mentioning it the other day. When you discover that you've been way lost in something else, in the moment of discovery, you wake up either from actually sleeping on the zafu or from being... <laughs> or from, which sometimes happens, doesn't it? And, or being lost in a whole thought or a whole rumination or some cloudy state. In the moment that you wake up, you say, whoa, I'm here. There's a real moment of brightness. That's a really a moment of mindfulness. I wasn't here. Now I am. 
in that moment that you wake up, really, use the brightness of the energy of that moment of mindfulness to see if it, you woke up on an in-breath or an out-breath. It's the same as waking up in the morning in the bed. Uh, that instruction of the Buddha, see if you woke up on an in-breath or an out-breath. You wake up on the zafu from a dream, from a reverie, from a rumination, from a long wandering thought, from a sleep, from anything. See if it's on an out-breath or an in-breath. That's not with aversion. When I used to struggle a lot with wandering mind and I discovered that, it was really with great aversion that I came back to the breath. You don't have to do that. You just do it with ease. Whoa, I'm up and I'm breathing out. Or I'm up and I'm breathing in. Sometimes it's very easy to do that. The energy of the wake up just brings you right back. This is, it's interesting to do that because when you can do that, sometimes you're back and you're back. You say, oh, I'm back. What was it I was thinking about? And you discover that it's all gone, that it has just disappeared. And you really get to see how really empty all those thoughts are. They, they seem so big, like major balloons of reality while we're involved in them. And then a moment after we've left them and come back, can't even remember what they are. It's a really amazing and enlightening, using the word loosely, thing to see. The less than instant way of returning is very effective when where the mind has wandered into seems to be somewhat sticky. When the instant way, when there isn't energy to come back instantly, the mind is stuck in whatever it's involved with. Often it's a thought. The thought is so interesting, so seductive, we're totally stuck in it. Make the return, every bit of it, mindful. You can do that by saying, I'm deciding to let go of this thought now. Now Joseph said this morning, you can say, not now. Not now, some other time. Next Sunday I'm going to think this thought for eight hours on my ride home. Not now. Now I'm letting go of the thought, and there's actually the, the resolve to do that. I'm letting go of this thought. I'm gathering the attention back in. It's actually a feeling of coming back to oneself as you gather the attention. I actually make the mental note to myself, returning. It's an actually an important note. Returning. Looking for the breath. Where's my breath? There's the breath. In and out and in and out. There is a sensation. There's a feeling in the mind of returning. And if you do that, just gently, I'm letting go, I'm returning. You get to be familiar with that sense of returning the mind to present experience. What we're actually trying to do as we're developing concentration is really training the mind to do that by itself. And it will eventually. But you need to show it how to do that. I think to myself sometimes, it's like taking your child to school. When you take it to the kindergarten, you take it in the morning, and then you come back at noon and you fetch it and you bring it home. And then you take it the next day and you come at noon and you fetch it and you bring it home again. And by and by, you take it in the morning and it comes home all by itself. And that's really what begins to happen as you begin to develop that level of concentration in the mind. The mind knows by itself that it's wandered and it knows the way home because you've taught it to return. So it's really actually fine 
to do the slow way of returning. Return slowly. Make the mental note returning. Feel yourself come back to present experience. Looking for the breath. There's the breath in and out. In and out. Again and again and again. It doesn't matter how many times the mind wanders. Each time, actually, I kind of have changed my mindset so that I can a little bit be happy when, when I notice the mind has wandered again. I say, well, here's another chance to train the mind. Bring it back. It's like you can welcome it as an opportunity rather than see it as something terribly wrong with your practice. By the way, I've given those two examples in terms of returning to the breath the exact same thing is true in the walking. You're walking and the mind wanders and you discover it. Whoa, I'm gone and I'm placing and I'm placing and I'm placing. You can come back instantly to the experience of walking. You can come back if you discover that the thought is really sticky. You can stop where you're standing. I say, okay, letting go. Returning to present experience, bringing all the attention into my feet, feeling the feet, feeling the contact with the ground, intending to step, and now lifting and moving. Bring yourself right back so that every part of that experience is part of mindfulness. Here's another aid to developing concentration. Don't do too much stuff. There are so many opportunities in the day when we think to ourselves... I'll just go have a cup of tea now, or I'll just go back to my room and get a sweater, or I'll just lie down for 20 minutes. This makes me sound really tough, like a master sergeant. What I think to myself when I am practicing is when I leave my room at 8.15 in the morning, I figure that I am now starting a period of really intensive practice until noon. I mean, you can stop at the water fountain and go to the toilet or whatever you need to do but that I'm going to be sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking until noon. It just really helps to develop the concentration, not to have too many different things to do, because if you can do an errand in between, it requires thinking about it and all kinds of planning. It just flurries up the mind a little bit. It's not naughty to do it. I'm not suggesting that it's a naughtiness to do it. It's just in my own practice, it's been very helpful to me at 2 o'clock to say, okay, now is a three-hour practice from 2 to 5. I'll just do it. Actually, now that I'm talking about practicing from 8.15 to noon and 2 to 5, now I'm about to talk about all the times in between, which aren't, which aren't apart from practice as well. And one of the things that really develops the concentration in this practice is keeping the continuity of practice going all the time, through the lunch time, through the shower time, through the yogi job time. It's a really great time. Because you really pay attention to what you're doing, chopping, 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 washing, washing, wiping, wiping. I really enjoy the job times because it's a different thing to pay attention to. Mental noting is a very big aid to developing concentration. Even if you feel that the notes are a little forced, even when the notes are really not part of, you're not connected in a way that you feel really mindful. Wiping, 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 placing, lifting, wiping, wiping, chopping, chopping. Maybe you're not really feeling the chopping or really feeling the wiping 
When you're doing that, at least your attention is right here and the mind is not wandering into stories. Stories, I think, are the biggest complicator of concentration, the stories that go on and on. The stories are so seductive. Joseph said this morning that I had overheard him say nothing is worth thinking about, so I gave up thinking. Actually, I didn't give up thinking so much as I gave up stories. I mean, we think all the time. The, 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 um, the awareness, the concept, I'm breathing in a long breath, that's a thought too. It's not a discursive thought. It's not a story thought. What I gave up was the stories, what I resolved in that time to give up. It's really, I heard him make that remark about nothing was worth thinking about. And I also realized that I was getting tired of my stories. I was thinking my stories over and over and over again. Just as we do, we have kind of a hit parade of stories that we think over and over and over again. And I realized that the stories weren't changing. They were the same. And I realized that when you go to a movie, when it comes to where you came in, you get up and you go out. You don't do the same story again. And yeah, I was doing the same story over and over again. And I knew that I had been practicing for years with not very much change in my ability to work with the mind. I loved listening to Buddha Dharma, but not a lot was happening to me. So I made the resolve. I love stories about resolve, about the Buddha sat down with resolve not to get up under the Bodhi tree. Resolve is a great idea. I love resolve. When I practice, I'm always making resolves at this and that. It's wonderful. It wakes up the mind. It brings tremendous intention to practice. So I made the resolve that I just wouldn't think thoughts, stories, ruminate, speculate at all. I would just stay with body sensations, just stay with the breath. I told that to people later on, my friends, and they said, wasn't that really tense practice? I said, yeah, it was for a little while, but I decided to have tense practice for a little while. It really was a period of decision on my part that that's what I wanted to do. It was okay, it wasn't unpleasant. My practice changed a lot. The story stopped when the concentration deepens. So then you don't have to deal with them so much. Actually, it's a pleasure to be finished with them a little bit. It's just the same old stories. (laughs) Here's one more um, idea about deepening concentration. Uh, I take refuges a lot. A lot, not just in the beginning of a retreat, but when I come in from a walking period and sit down... Because the energy gets a little flurried up in walking or eating or doing the job. and uh, It's just a, a different kind of energy. And so kind of to settle back down and reestablish concentration, I sit down and I do the refuges. Somebody asked in an interview the other day, how many times do you do them? Uh, is there a special formula? Once, three times. The formula is to do them three times. I do them as many times as I want to. And I do them as many times as I get to feel I'm really here. Um, I've come back and I'm here and I'm settled down. It makes me happy to do the refuges. It brings up a certain amount of energy and resolve and inspiration. And it concentrates the mind. 
So that's another thing you can do. So now we'll talk about having all those tools, like here's a bag of techniques for concentration. Here's a bag of techniques for developing uh, mindfulness, clear-seeing, alertness in the mind. One I mentioned before of when you feel that the mind is sort of heavy in one-pointedness, move around the attention to wake it up. Touch points is one way of doing that. Mental notes are very helpful in waking up the attention. Mental noting isn't mindfulness. Mental noting, the very quiet pointing in the mind to what the experience actually is. It's like a finger pointing at the moon. It's not the moon. It's just, look over there. The mental note brings the attention to the experience. It's a very small part of it. After all, when you sit and you say to yourself, say you're sitting and breathing and you say, in or out or rising and falling or breath in, breath out. When you think about it, there's no such thing as an in or an out. I mean, in is a whole constellation of sensations and pressures and shiftings, shifting awarenesses. Out is a myriad of other sensations and awarenesses. Rising and falling is shifting pressures all over the place. In is the note that brings your attention to all of that stuff happening. Couldn't begin to say all of those discrete little sensations, but you can say in, and it brings the attention to all of those sensations and helps you see them and know them and be aware of their changing. It brings the attention to that place. So another thing about mental noting, even when we are making mental notes, especially in the periods during between sitting and walking periods, and going to our room or making our bed or opening the door. A lot of times, if we're really practicing with diligence, we're saying to ourselves our experience as it's happening. And we're really not connected with the experience in the intimate way that really mindful awareness is. We're really just saying lifting and reaching and touching and turning and pulling and whatever it is. If you do that meticulously, all of a sudden, one in, in any particular moment, you'll be lifting or reaching or touching, making that note to yourself, and all of a sudden, you'll realize, I'm really here. You'll lift and you'll really be in the lift. Or you'll touch, just as you're knowing touching, and all of the attention is there. And it's really thrilling. It's really exciting. Do you remember the other day someone asked a question in the question and answer period? They said, is the breath going to get more interesting than the thoughts? And Joseph said, guaranteed. It's true. Moments of mindfulness are really exciting. As a matter of fact, that was such a surprise. I thought, I can't believe it. I'm getting excited about knowing that I'm putting my foot down when I'm putting my foot down. That's a kind of a plain thing to get excited about. 
It's a totally thrilling thing to be mindful. And when moments of mindfulness happen, they bring up tremendous interest in the mind. The mind wakes up. Wow, this is interesting. And then you get energy, and then sleepiness goes away, and then interest is right there, and then your stories are not interesting at all. Reaching and touching and placing, that becomes interesting. So I really want to suggest that you do the noting as much as you can, as consistently as you can, in between sitting and walking all the time, even if you feel, this is not mindfulness, this is talking to myself. Talk to yourself, say what's happening, and then all of a sudden the concentration will deepen enough so that it'll be a moment of real, true mindfulness. Say, hey, I knew that. Sometimes when I'm walking, doing walking practice, this is a thing that you might do to um, wake up the alertness. Sometimes you're walking, maybe actually you've gotten fairly concentrated in the walk, but a little bit concentrated in that sort of zoned way that sometimes happens in sitting practice. Sometimes maybe the mind wanders into a thought and you can be saying to yourself, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. And the mind is a million miles away telling a whole story. And the body is moving, and the words are saying, and nobody's home, really. <laughs> when that happens, stop just where you are and say to yourself, what's happening? Just stand there. I stand and say, what's happening? And you feel the temperature, if I'm outside, I feel the breeze on my face. I feel the energy in my body. Or I continue to walk and I feel my arms moving. Say to yourself, what's happening? What's happening right here? And when I know what's happening right here, I bring the attention back into the feet and continue again. Keep the alertness up. I'll tell you one more feel really like bags of tricks for meditation. This is the last one in the... uh, Is it the last one? I think so. Um, In the bag of tricks for mindfulness and for uh, cultivating mindfulness. It's a personal trick that I do. Be the last person online for lunch. That's a particular practice that I have. It's a very good practice. I'll tell you why it's good. First of all, you get to continue the mindfulness that you had while sitting before lunch because you get to get up slowly. Everybody else goes out to get online. You sit. You get up slowly. You pay attention. You walk out. You realize you have enough concentration, enough slowness in walking out to feel the desire arising. You walk out of this room and you smell the lunch and you feel excitement and desire. Actually, the lunch is one of the best places of the day to practice mindfulness because in terms of sensual stimulation, it's really the high point of the whole day in terms of sensual input. So in terms of all the sense stores, smelling, tasting, looking, it's a terrific opportunity to wake up the mindfulness. You get to be the last online. You get to have the longest time to stand there smelling, anticipating, salivating, worrying, is there going to be enough left for me? (laughs) Fretting, recrimination, I shouldn't have waited. Now, there probably won't be enough. Back and forth. 
looking around to see if there really is enough. It's the, 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 all the sense doors are so woke up at that point that really it's a terrific opportunity to practice mindfulness of every aspect of your experience. I sometimes have the notion when I suggest this to a group of people that the following day when the bell rings at lunchtime <laughs> nobody will move. Everybody will sit there <laughs> wanting to be the last person online for the lunch. So it's a balance. All of it's a balance. I wanted to talk a little bit about the notion of balance in working with the difficult energies. I've been talking about balancing mindfulness and concentration. Talk just a little bit about staying balanced with those five difficult energies, which are really the principal impediments to clear seeing. Energy of desire, which is really clinging and pulling in the mind, and the energy of aversion, which is negativity and pushing away in the mind, and the energy of sloth and sleepiness, which is not enough energy in the mind, and the energy of restlessness and fretting and anxiety, which is too much energy in the mind, and the energy of doubt, which really which really is very difficult to practice with. I want to tell you kind of um, three ways of, three kind of levels of approach to staying balanced. The first one we've talked about, um, as we've mentioned the, these difficult energies, and it's really just to recognize them, to see if you can name them when they're happening rather than get involved in the story. Mostly we get stuck in the story and the story goes on and on and on and then we believe the story and we forget that really it's doubt or really it's desire or really it's restlessness. We get more thinking about it and talking to ourselves about it. Really to recognize the energy and really to feel it fully. Restlessness. How is restlessness in my body? Okay, here I am. This is restless. Feeling it energetically. Feeling clinginess and greed energetically. Feeling negativity, like tightening in the mind and the body energetically. When you face an energy, when you face anything clearly and know it fully, it changes and it diminishes and it goes away and you can come back to whatever else was the primary object come back to the breath or the walking or the eating or the chopping or whatever it was that was the object of attention at that time they're just mind states they're empty and when you look at them clearly and you know them fully they often just disappear sometimes they don't disappear quite so easily So now I'm going to talk about the next level of balance. It really does sound like a cookbook. The next level of balance is that there are specific things that you can do for each of those difficult energies, kind of antidotes, kind of... um, Antidotes is a good word. Greed or desire an interesting one. Joseph was talking the other night about uh, renouncing as a way of dealing with greed. 
I find, for instance, I watch how desires come up, and if you don't do them, they go away. Have the desire to go to my room and get a sweater. Decide not to. Say, this is all right, I just use the shawl. You really, and then right away, it's gone. And it was just a trick of the mind. It was just desire looking for an object. It really, that's what it is. It's, the energy comes up and then it figures out something to do with it. comes up for me um, when I'm practicing around eating. Because I, when I finally do get down that long lunch line, by the way, it's so fascinating to go through the lunch line when you finally get up to it. You have such a, if you stay mindful, an awareness of how the mind says, oh, good, tofu, or oh, fooey, tofu. And you watch them up, down, up, down. Oh, kale, I like kale. Oh, I don't like the salad dressing. Up, down, up, down. You watch liking and not liking in the mind in a rapid-fire succession as you go down the lunch line. It's tremendously illuminating. Anyway, by the time you get down to the lunch line, by the time I start the lunch line, all of a sudden I have a huge appetite and the greed factor in the mind is tremendous. I start to think, better take a little more that you're really practicing hard, you need a little more. Uh, <laughs> you recognize that you'll be hungry by dinner. What if they just have peanut butter for tea and I don't like peanut butter? All those kind of thoughts come up. Better take more now. At the same time, there's the other voice that says, you know, if you eat too much, you'll be sleepy at 2 o'clock. And besides, if you eat this mindfully, you don't need as much as you think you do. In that moment, to recognize it and really say, I don't need half that. I don't need this, and I don't need this, and I don't need that. Just, I mean, take lunch. I'm not saying fast. <laughs> but be aware of the desire factor coming up and the fact that you don't need to attend to it. And you see it might disappear. If you sit down and you eat and you're still hungry, you can go back and get more. It's just working with the energy. Um, working with the energy of negativity. Sometimes you notice it, you notice aversion, aversion, negativity, angers come up, some unpleasant feeling. You feel it, you feel it, you feel it. It's unpleasant and it doesn't go away. Say, what am I going to do now? What, what I find is very helpful is doing metta, loving kindness. And when I'm practicing in an intense way as you are, I very rarely find myself doing metta for other people. I'm doing it for myself. Sounds like a kind of a selfish thing to do, but it seems to me quite right. Here we are really in this instance, really working with our own experience. When, my, when, when a difficult mind state like negativity is present in me and remains and remains no matter how I feel it and be with it, what I am aware of is how much suffering I have from it. It is this experience of suffering towards which I can really uh, direct the metta. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be free from suffering. And do that a little bit. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be free from suffering. And do it a little bit. And find that the negativity just releases all kinds of antidotes for sleepiness. We've talked about a lot of them. Just think about ways to bring energy into the system. Eat less, take a fast walk, sit up straighter, take some deep breaths, stand up. 
It's really a, an, a difficult energy where there's not enough energy in the mind, so it's hard to work with sleepiness and torpor. There's sort of mechanical ways that you can work with it. Actually, as the interest in the practice picks up, the sleepiness goes away altogether. is isn't usually a problem at all. Way of working with restlessness, which manifests as restlessness in the body. You get to feel, if I sit here another minute, I'll explode. Or restlessness in the mind, which is fretting. I wonder how I'll do this, I wonder how I'll do that. If this will be all right, that'll be all right. You really can calm yourself. If the restlessness is overwhelming and you don't seem to be able to return to the breath or the walking as a calming mechanism, you can say to yourself, breathing in, I'm calming the mind and the body. I'm breathing in and I'm calming the mind and the body. I'm taking this long and calming breath in and out. And some people would say, well, you know, that's not allowing the breath to arise just naturally, just by itself. It's conditioning the experience. It is, but it's skillful conditioning. It's a way of balancing the balancing the enterprise so it can continue on. It's like taking refuges or doing metta. It's a way of catching your balance. One of the ways that I work with doubt, well, actually it is the major way that I work with doubt other than rushing off to see a teacher and say, am I doing this right? Is I look around and I look at all the yogis around me. So when I have doubt, I look around. I used to have, in the beginning, doubt in the practice, I think. Every once in a while I'd look around and I'd think, this is a weird thing we're doing. How on earth is doing this going to bring me to freedom? And then I'd look around, especially when I was in pain, then I'd look around and I'd say, all these people are doing it. Probably they can't all be wrong. And that was a real dispeller of doubt, because the doubt stories, I shouldn't be here, I should be doing something else, it's the wrong meditation for me, I should do it. You look around and say, all these people are doing it. That was a big help for me. Those are all kind of tactical ways, stratagems, if you will. I'll tell you a really good news, though. After having told you all those stratagems, if A happens to B, if C happens to D, I'll tell you, you really don't need a stratagem. Because in the long run, as concentration deepens, that takes care of all the hindrances. I'll tell you how, to, how it does it. You just practice. Everybody's concentration here is deepening just from being here, just from doing the schedule, just from walking and sitting, even if you don't feel like you're making tremendous progress. This is so much less stimulating than your normal life that the concentration is settling just by itself. There are certain factors that arise as elements of a concentrated mind I'll just tell them to you. You don't have to remember them. It's not important to remember them. It's just sort of soothing to know about them. One of the factors of a concentrated mind is that it has the ability to be one-pointed. It can stay with something. As the attention is one-pointed, desire comes up less because desire is really the mind looking around for different, more satisfying objects. And as the mind begins to have more one-pointedness in it. Desire is not such a problematic energy. 
As concentration develops, joy arises in the mind. A certain amount of rapture in the mind and body, which is really the natural antidote to negativity. Joy really is the natural antidote. Anger goes away. Resentment, irritation. Feel expansive of heart when you feel joyous, don't you? As the mind concentrates, the ability to see clearly, precisely, to aim the mind at whatever the experience is, gets clearer and clearer and clearer. That ability to aim the mind, to know what's happening, is really what wakes up the mind. It's the antidote to sleepiness in the mind. It happens just by itself. As the mind concentrates, there's a certain amount of contentment and calm that's a factor of concentration. And it's a natural antidote to restlessness in the mind. As the mind concentrates, the ability to sustain the interest in what's ever happening just deepens. As we begin to see that we can sustain the interest with a breath, with a series of breath, with walking, as we begin to see that we can do it, doubt goes away. I can do it. So the natural antidote to all of those difficult energies really comes with deepening concentration, which just comes from doing this simple practice. Just breathe, pay attention. Just walk, pay attention. I want to say one last thing about practicing in the spirit of metta. You may have noticed it says metta over the front door of this building. Metta is a word that is often translated as um, loving-kindness. And that's a fine translation for it. The, the word that I like to think about the most is it comes from the same root of the word, which means friend. And metta means friendliness. Um, sometimes this is called, this practice is called the path of friendliness. And it's really... The notion of friendliness to me in this practice is the notion of being open to all moments of experience with impartial friendliness. When people do formal metta practice, and we'll do a formal metta probably at the end of this retreat, it's really um, structured formal practice in which one uh, thinks about and repeats in the mind well-wishing for oneself, for one's benefactor, for well-loved friends, for people that we don't know at all, and finally to people even that we have difficulty with, and then to all beings. Some people do metta practice as their entire practice, hoping to establish a kind of open-handed, friendly, open-hearted, equanimous friendliness, balance, towards all beings, not these I'm open to and these not, but really realizing and our, our mutual uh, interbeing, realizing our sameness with all beings, really to open to all beings with impartiality, with friendliness, with compassion. That's the formal metta practice. When we talk about doing this vipassana practice with a spirit of metta, it seems to me that we can't do this vipassana practice not in a spirit of metta. 
What we are doing here is not so much thinking about opening to all beings with impartiality, but opening to all aspects of our experience with impartiality. Not to say, I'll have these feelings, but not those feelings, or these thoughts, but not those thoughts, or these emotions, but not that one. That I will be open to all of it with even-handed, balanced impartiality. I like to think of it as uh, being a friend to each moment. doesn't mean that they don't remain pleasant or unpleasant, that they don't have feeling tones, but that we work to cultivate that sort of friendly, balanced openness. The other aspect of metta, which I think is part of the spirit of metta, is the spirit of forgiveness. In formal metta practice, where one thinks of other persons, other beings, especially when one thinks of people that we've had difficulty with, one hopes to develop a sense of forgiveness for any pain we may have felt as a result of our interaction with those people or persons. And we try to cultivate the awareness that when people act in a way that causes pain, it's usually done from a place of not knowing and not clear seeing. We try to develop the sense of forgiveness so that we can be equally impartial towards all persons. In this Vipassana practice, I think that the spirit of forgiveness is being always able to forgive oneself for how it is with us. Forgive forgive ourselves totally spaciously in this practice so that we can practice totally zealously, totally with dedication, and however the practice unfolds, that's fine. Whatever comes up, that's what's there. To be totally open, totally spacious about what's there, totally forgiving about when the mind is not malleable, when the mind is not present, when mindfulness can't be there, when the concentration is totally lost, that each moment we start again and say, that already happened, now I am open to the next moment. It's a really crucial way to practice. Forgiveness for oneself is really the antidote to becoming demoralized with one's practice. Really a very important thing. So that happened, now I start again. Once again, once again, once again. That's past. Now is the moment. So this has been a tremendous list of cookbooks. Box A, box B, and box C. Door number one, door number two. I thought about that it might sound like a cookbook recipe, but then I thought, well, that's okay. Sometimes I think about that we're all cooking Buddhas here. Sometimes I look out and I know that everybody is cooking away, that everybody is doing, is wherever they are. We're all working with being with our experience as closely as we can be. We've come to this place of felicitous circumstance that supports us in our practice. The factors are all ripening in each of us kind of like pots of Buddhas cooking away. Sometimes I like to think to myself, I believe it, 
that it's all, it is all just happening just by itself. We provide the circumstances, intention arises, interest arises, energy arises, effort arises, and it's all just happening. So you can really be easy with that and enjoy it. Let's just sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 6, 1991. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.